Turn to Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3. You have heard it probably a thousand times. There's a thousand times, a thousand ways to skin a cat. I've never seen anyone skin a cat, but I just believe that's true. I've never skinned a cat. Quite a few deer, but that's a different story. Luke chapter 3, I, I highlight that to say that when it, comes to, when it comes to God's Word, there's probably a thousand ways to preach. Not all of them necessarily good, but uh, the best is when it's founded and grounded and rooted on and in the Word of God. So we're not, we're not here uh, to hear explained uh, someone else's opinions, or well, the preacher is not one who brings just some anecdotes or some interesting sentimental things to uh, lift up and give us something positive to ponder in the week ahead. Uh, we're hearing, uh, Lord willing, by His Spirit, His Word. And, and so there are different approaches, and not all are bad. Our method is, uh, you know, there's different approaches to doing a jigsaw puzzle, for instance. I was thinking of this last night when I was working with our youngest on a, a large jigsaw puzzle. You know, you typically are looking for those border pieces uh, first. Uh, that's, a, that's an approach. Our approach here is that uh, we believe it's best to simply follow the text and to exposit, to explain, to apply God's Word as it goes. And, uh, and, and so that's where we're at. We're in the Gospel of Luke. We think it's the best way to do it, uh, partly because we know we're following the contour of the way that God has revealed Himself in His Word. So we're close to what the author intends. We're trying to understand the context. We're trying to understand uh, the main themes as they develop and as they, as they uh, come into focus. Uh, the other benefit to that is that I'm not here just to come and highlight from this word what I think uh, is best or what I particularly like. I'm not even coming here to say, here's what I think our people will most like or the people that I hope to, to see come here will like the most. I, I'm here just to set up uh, what God's Word says, and to exalt and to lift up. Because when you, when you do lay out a framework of a jigsaw puzzle, and then when you finish it in particular, what do you see except this great, when it comes to God's Word, this great redemptive story from creation, fall, redemption, restoration that highlights the person and work of Jesus. Uh, not, not, not something that's flowing in the culture, not something, not a personality, uh, not, some, not some theory that's hot for now and, and fades later, but the person and work of Jesus. That's what we have come to hear. And see, Luke wants us to see that. All the gospel writers, all the writers of all of the scripture want us to see that, inspired of God. Luke in particular, uh, I highlighted this last week, uh, has a, a way of capturing it from his vantage point as a historian, as a physician. You can tell that he's done this detailed work in researching and then documenting for us. Well, it starts with Theophilus. He tells us this in the beginning of Luke 1. Oh, most excellent Theophilus. Some have speculated maybe he was a wealthy uh, nobleman who, who sent him out, who kind, of, who kind of hired him to go and research and bring back this account. Ended up being a pretty long one, right? Because if you remember, Luke is actually two volumes. It includes also the Acts of the Apostles, which he also records again for Theophilus. And along the way, you get this idea that maybe Theophilus was particularly inquisitive and that we have all these details, but you get the impression in the Gospel of Luke that what he wants us to see about the person and work of Jesus is that Jesus is pretty intent on reaching the outsider, not those who assume themselves to be inside and right and upright and, and righteous and worthy and all put together, 
but those who may perhaps see themselves outside this particular chapter, uh, we will see that, uh, that, that Jesus isn't just aiming at the clean and the upright and the well-respected. In fact, we know later in Luke, there's a story of a guy who is up in a sycamore tree, right? And a wee, a wee little man is he. But is Zacchaeus' problem, for those of you who know the story, have sung the song, have some acquaintance with it, is Zacchaeus' problem the fact that he's small? No. Is, the fact that, is it the fact that he's hated? Is that his problem? It's a problem. I mean, he's, he is exceptionally hated because he was the chief tax collector, which is another word in those days for an extortioner. Young people, kids, that means he was, he was a thief. Zacchaeus' biggest problem is that he knew he didn't have peace with God and he decided to go and find out about Jesus. And when he did, he loved Jesus. He, he, he came to Jesus and Jesus welcomed him. And people were absolutely shocked and stunned that Jesus went and ate with him. And in that meeting, he says at the close, for everybody else who's looking outside saying, what's Jesus doing with these lowlifes? Jesus says in Luke 19.10, I think this is probably the best way to capture the theme of the Gospel of Luke, it's this. The Son of Man, the Son of God came to seek and to save that which was lost. Not, not those who thought themselves found, but those who are lost. Well, let's read God's Word. I invite you to stand in deference. <clears throat> We're going to read the opening 22 verses, so bear with me. In the 15th year, we read this, Luke 3.1. This is God's word. The reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate, being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee. These are the different regions, the notables, the authorities. And his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Ithura and Traconitus, and Lysanus, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God. This is the important part. The word of God were located in history. But there at the close of chapter, verse 2, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he, that is John, went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice, quote, of the one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight. And the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, that is John, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourself, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God's able to take one of these stones and raise it up as, a ch as children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, What then shall we do? And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with the one who has none. Whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone who 
threats or by false accusation and be content with your wages. As the people were in expectation, all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, the anointed. Verse 16, John answered them saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I'm not, un- I'm not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So, with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were open, that's the skies, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice from, came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. This is God's Word. You may be seated. Why don't we ask God's help? God, I pray that right now you would be glorified uh, because you are the all-sufficient, all-worthy God. Would you please come in the ways that you uniquely can, Holy Spirit, and unplug our ears spiritually, soften our hearts spiritually so that we would have faith and we would grow in faith and in hope and in love. For Jesus' sake and in his name we pray. Amen. Many years ago in Boston, they had at the Museum of Science uh, a large exhibit. Uh, it was called The Day in Pompeii. And uh, I was tempted to go, uh, but I missed out and then, then it turned into some kind of bonsai thing, so I didn't go. But anyway, it wasn't a big deal. I'd actually been to Pompeii 20 years prior uh, in college. And uh, Pompeii, as some of you know, uh, the reason the day in Pompeii would have been a big deal, if you're thinking back to 79 AD, uh, the, the reason that it's a, it's a big deal is because the entire city uh, what, you know, was buried. Uh, it was buried in something. What was that? Well, it was, it was ash and pumice. Uh, we, we have no idea how many thousands of people died uh, from, uh, from suffocation uh, in that ancient city uh, all because right there in modern day Italy now, the, day of, the, the Bay of Pompeii, of the Bay of Naples, the, the ancient city of Pompeii is right in the shadow of this great mountain. You can't miss it. It's, 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 it's huge. And it's Mount Vesuvius. And it, it, it is to this very day an active volcano, believe it or not. It actually erupted. It was, it was harmless, but it did start to erupt back in the 40s. But if it were to erupt, it, you know, it's a, it's a big deal to this very day. And if you were to go to the city and talk to people and say, hey, what do you think about that mountain over there? You can guarantee that everyone has a thought or an opinion. They may say, well, it's beautiful, especially this time of year. There's, you know, there's snow. The, 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 the small shopkeeper or storefront guy might say, I love that mountain. It brings all kinds of tourism and, and I, you know, I'm able to feed my family. I, I don't know. But there's really nothing in between. You have an opinion because the people who live there live there conscientious of the fact that they are in what is called the Zona Rosa, the red zone. The reason it's the, it, to this very day is the, is the most potentially deadly, dangerous volcano in all of the world is because some, upwards of like 3 million people live nearby. But the people, the 600 or so thousand who live in the Zona Rosa, if it were to erupt, it's just too late. They will die like the people in ancient Pompeii in 79. So, you know, you, you have a thought, you have an opinion about that mountain. It is significant. It is not 
It's not something that you can just escape from your mind altogether. Well, maybe you can, but it doesn't escape your sight. And so to flip that this morning, I want to ask you, what do you think? What do you think about the end of the world, about the coming of the judgment of God? What do you think about God? Apathy, indifference is not really tenable. I mean, you even get, it's an important question, right? It's an important question to visit and revisit. You get the impression that as John is preaching to these people, it's a big deal. You get the sense of of urgency, don't you? I mean, if you look at the language, and we'll unpack it. Well, let me just unpack it this way. Three questions this morning. What is John proclaiming? What, second, what are the people lacking? And then last, what what is Jesus doing with, with baptism? First question, which is probably our biggest one, is that is what, what exactly is John proclaiming? This is, his, you know, this is his intro to his public ministry. He's a peculiar man, and he's, he's out in the desert. We knew him, actually, back in December. We, we found out about John that in the, fir- the first chapter of Luke, he was inside of his mother's womb, Elizabeth. She's, she's older in age, and they have an encounter. That is, he and Jesus, also in utero uh, with, with Mary, and, and he's filled with the Holy Spirit. He's converted as a follower of Jesus before he's even born. And God has marked him. We're, we're told that. It's prophesied. It's, it's told. And now it's, it's coming to fruition because he's a grown man. Jesus is now a grown man. And we, we, we see the fullness or we begin to see the fullness of their mission. What is John doing? Verse 2. Well, it's important that we see that it's the word of God that came to John. And that's, that's a bigger deal than all the, 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 the notables mentioned in the opening one verse there. But verse 2, it says that the word of God came to John. John's way out in the desert. He's out by the, the Jordan River. His primary message, what is he proclaiming? Well, it's, it's one of preparation. But it's also one of action. It's a, it's a message that he's proclaiming that is, you need to act and respond internally and externally. Verse 3, it says that he is proclaiming a baptism of repentance. He's inviting people to get baptized and to repent, to turn, that is, from sin. The quote here that is preparing it, the the, the fulfilled prophecy in verse 4, is a quote from Isaiah 40. The voice that is promised here that would be raised up is John the baptizer. He's the final prophetic voice. If you would imagine that the people of God... They had they'd drawn close to God, and then they rebelled, and then they drew close to God, and then they rebelled. And all along the way, God sent messengers, and they were largely hated. Uh, they were largely at times rejected, but to the extent that they were heard, people repented. And here is the, the last final prophet. Pretty significant, though, because God has now waited a whopping, you know, it's a significant season of silence, 400 years, and now to prepare right before Messiah is to come into focus, the, the anointed Jesus, John is the final prophet, and he's calling forth. He's calling forth this long span. There's still, unfortunately, many of them in a spiritual, uh, you know, a spiritual state of, of hardness and rebellion. But for those that it's beginning to, to stir within them, there's an anticipation that Messiah is here. Now, to make straight is to, is to, uh, per, just to prepare. And he, he makes that very uh, clear, both in saying, the voice of one, prepare the way, then make straight his paths. Uh, his paths. What, what's being said here is that whatever is crooked or bent or not in line with the keeping of God's holy will uh, needs to be examined. Our hearts, our lives, 
God needs to have access there. God already knows that, where we are, but we need to look inward and then begin to turn and, and to face Him and to clear away the selfishness, the love of, of worldly things, the things that violate our conscience, the things that are omissions of, of complacency, our own self-righteousness, our greed, fill in the blank. These are all obstacles to God working. We need to confess those things. We need to confess our need for Him, which is not just for His blessing, but for, first and foremost, His forgiveness, His salvation. That's why they can look up at the end of verse 6, and all flesh shall see salvation from God. You don't look in the mirror and see salvation. It's looking out at the Messiah coming that is giving great hope here. Baptism, now just a word about this particular baptism, which is different, by the way, than what we practice uh, in Christian baptism. This is a baptism that was known to be a ceremonial uh, in the, amongst the Hebrew people, a ceremonial uh, ritual of cleansing that would be for Gentiles who had desired to convert and be enfolded into, along with a, a, num- a number of other things they would do to be enfolded, they would need to be washed. And so baptism for this particular moment is one that is a symbolic rite of cleansing. John is encouraging them also with a great sense of urgency in that baptism to what? Turn to God. And the urgency, you see it in two verses here. The first one I would highlight is verse 9, because he says, Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree can be cut down and, and, and sent to the fire. In other words, all the pruning is done. All the parts, if you take down a large pine tree, you know, you get a lot of work preliminarily to do before you even hit down close to the, to the, to the bay sometimes. But it's, it's, it's at the very close. The axe is at the root now. The other sense of urgency, you see it. Here is, a, is, is another mention, verse 17. Speaking of, of Christ who comes and baptizes with spirit and fire, verse 17 says, His winnowing fork is in His hand to clear the threshing floor. This is a, a farm or an agricultural I- implement. That fork is one that is used uh, to harvest uh, you know, the, the wheat and to get that, you need to tear off the chaff. So this is, this is a, an imagery for them to see where the instrument is in his judgment. He's coming to separate what is good, the wheat, the grain, from the chaff, which would be, which would be dispensed with and burned away. What is good and what is not. What is worthless is cast off into, it says there in verse 17, an unquenchable fire. He's speaking of Christ judging the Messiah judging all hearts and souls. John, in other words, John is saying that the volcano is coming. It's not too late, but you need to flee to God. What else does John proclaim? Well, he proclaims things with his words and with his actions. He is saying very clearly Jesus is the greatest. I, I say with actions because it involves his posture. Even though people were flocking out to John, I mean, he was a rock star amongst rock stars of the day. He's telling them, I'm not the greatest, the goat. uh, Sorry, I missed that last Sunday. But the the goat, the greatest of all time, is is not me. It's Jesus. And it's interesting because Jesus later, we read this in Luke 7, Jesus says, excuse me, Jesus says of John, there is no one born of a woman who is greater than this man. No human is greater than John. And then what does John say 
to all of these people about Messiah, which he's telling you, I am not. When Messiah comes, he is so great that I cannot even bow down and untie his sandal. Lowest of lowest jobs. I'm not, I'm not his right-hand man. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to go and dance in the parade with him. I'm the lowest of even below servant slave. I cannot even count myself worthy to touch his filthy sandal. But obviously, John takes his job as prophet, as humble as he may be, pretty seriously, because he gets up in the face with boldness of the leaders like Herod, verse 19, and says, you are a sexual deviant. You are immoral. And we'll read of that later in the Gospel of Luke. And then he turns to the people. This is really winsome. And he says to them, you're the son of a bunch of snakes. Thank you very much. You're, I'm, I'm a viper. That's a, you're, a, you're a brood. You're a bunch of baby snakes, verse 7, he says. Some of you kids, I know I just woke you up. Um, what, what does this mean? What is he challenging them to see and understand? Well, it leads me to my next question. What is it that the people are lacking? This is what John is proclaiming. Repentance, baptism, turn to God. That you need to be made right with God. Then, then he is highlighting what is lacking. So what are the people lacking? Well, verse 8. Let's look at our text again. You, he says he warns them to flee from the wrath coming. Verse 8, he says, Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. The greatest privilege of the day would have been to be part of the covenant community. To be on the inside of the blessed descendants of Abraham, the chosen people. It would have been wonderful. And he's saying, unlike any of your parents, and unlike maybe you this very day, tempted to say, I'm all right with God. Because I'm part of the chosen people. Be not deceived, he is saying. God, could, God, God doesn't need that. God could take these, these rocks and make descendants of the, spiritually of true Israel, Abraham. So I say that, I, say, I highlight that to say it's, it's true for you today, for everyone here. I, I want to remind you don't trust in your tradition, your heritage, your legacy. Don't trust in. in and your attendance to the religious things. Don't trust young people in the fact that your parents have baptized you. Good for them. Brought you to church. Good for them. Good for you? Perhaps. Come to him. Trust him. Don't assume. We're, we're, we're so inclined, all of us, let's be honest for a moment, not that we weren't previously, but let's be, let's be frank. We're so inclined, aren't we? We, we have just this, this, this natural pull to boast in external things. We assume that everything's right in the world because we're a little bit prettier. We're, we're more hardworking. We're smarter. We're, we're, we're more successful. We're... We, we're we are more religious and more devoted than something or someone. What are they lacking? They're lacking, verse 8, he's telling us, true conversion and true repentance. 
true conversion and true repentance. They have not truly forsaken their sin. They have not truly turned to God. That's the foundational message. It's actually the first recorded words of Jesus' ministry. Well, we, we talk about in the temple. But when he goes out and he begins to, to, to begin his public ministry, Mark 1.15 says that his message is very clear. It's, it's echoing this. Repent and believe the gospel. Repent and believe the gospel. The gospel is the foundational yet so simple message that God has done for us in Christ, who they were looking forward to, <clears throat> excuse me, and we're looking back. He has done something in Christ by reconciling, by grace, through faith, us to God. This is why I, rem- I remind people regularly that in the gospel and in true Christianity, true, true Christianity is spelled with a four-letter word. I got you right. <clears throat> D-O-N-E. Now, every other religion is a two-letter word. D-O. Do. Do this. Do this. Do that. And Christianity is spelled done. D-O-N-E. In Christ. Now, this word repentance is inviting us to something. It's very prominent in Scripture. It's mentioned, repentance, that, that, that root word is mentioned... 50 plus times in the New Testament. It means that we surrender to something. We change and we turn from sin and to God. And when we do, gradually something begins to change and we begin to, we begin to bear fruit. Not, 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 not flawlessly, not, not, you know, not, not, not perfectly, but, but genuinely, naturally we begin to bear fruit. But it's the fruit that He brings that He bears in us, that His grace is working, the finished work of Jesus being united to Him. We have resurrection power to say no and yes and to, to live out and to bear the fruit of His Spirit. And that's, that's why when John, he wants to respond to their question, he doesn't say, when they, then when they ask to Him in verse 11, what shall we do? Excuse me, verse 10, they say, the crowds ask Him, what then shall we do? He begins in verse 11 by saying, he doesn't say nothing. He says, this is what you ought to do. Be generous. Instead of loving money, why don't you start loving people with your money? And and then the tax collector comes and says, well, what am I supposed to do? Be honest, verse 13. Don't steal anymore. And then the soldier comes and he he says, what shall I do? Well, don't use your position to to manipulate people, to be civil. But notice all of all the things that are highlighted, what John does not say. He doesn't say, quit your job. Don't be a soldier anymore. Don't be a tax collector. Don't be wealthy. Just, just stop all that. Be a full-time, devoted, you know, uh, religious person, which will definitely make you holier. No, it will not. And I'm, I'm proof of that. Uh, you know, just because you, you give up some vocation in the world does not make you holy. He's dealing here with the heart. He's saying whatever your job, in that forsake self and sin. Bear the fruit of honesty and humility and civility and generosity. That's the fruit. That's part of the fruit of repentance that shows up over time. So what's Jesus, to close out, what's Jesus doing with baptism? 
You know, it was only highlighted just briefly in Luke's record of it. In verse 21, it just, it's almost like it just skims right over. Now, when all the people were baptized and Jesus also with them. You, maybe, you, maybe you thought to yourself, well, then what? If that's, a, if that's a baptism of cleansing and repentance and confession and, and a sign of, of our need, definitely something that the Gentiles need, and now John's saying even that the Jews need, then I still don't quite understand why on earth Jesus, the Son of Man in all His perfection and holiness, needs to be baptized. That's a good question. John himself has that question. Because in other gospel accounts, it's recorded that he looks to Jesus and says, I'm not baptizing you. you I should be the one asking you to baptize me. He says, no, this is the Father's. This is, this is the plan. So why? Jesus is going to the lowest point. He is identifying with our weakness as humans. He's, he's, he is locating himself in our neediness and our humanity, even to this very point. But only so that he would continue on in humble obedience, beginning at this point, carrying on into the wilderness, into a great temptation. He is faithful to his mission. He is obedient. He has been all along to that mission to seek and to save that which is lost. And after his baptism, there's something unique that happens here. Some people think it happened all the time. Oh, you know, God started speaking. This is unique. Verse 22 captures something that's only twice recorded in the life of Jesus, where the heavens open and the, the, the voice of God comes down. It must have been booming. It must have been overwhelming to see this sky open up. This dove comes down, and then the Father says, what? Verse 22, the, the Holy Spirit is there in descending on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice from heaven came saying, You are my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Do you know him? Do you, do you know intimately, personally, Jesus? How much Jesus, how much, really the whole Trinity is here. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. This is a, so this is a profound moment in history. Oh, how he must love us. How, how he must love his people. And he will baptize with fire. Now, now, for those who have communion with God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, for those who have repented and believed, this is a different fire than what's mentioned in verse 9. That is a destructive fire. But verse 17 says he will baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire. And that's not destructive. That's restorative, refining, renewing fire. It makes us more like Jesus. The goal here is change. The goal here, of course, is the glory of God, but that we would bear fruit into that glory. And then there's this urgency here. This is all very urgent for them. It's urgent for us even. Judgment is coming with King Jesus. And e even if that is not the case in the near future, and we do not know, but it's coming for all of us in that arranged meeting at the point that everyone dies if not the second coming before then, that we would meet with our Creator and Judge. How can we be sure that the, the, the wrath, that that axe and that winnowing fork is not against us? Well, we look to Christ. We take refuge in Him and in Him alone. 
Some of you have smartphones. And some of you have that possibility that you can see when someone is writing you back on a text, right? Talk about a sermon illustration I wouldn't have used a dozen years ago. Anyway, you're there, right? And you're texting them, and, and it's, it, there's, like a, there's like a little waiting thing, and you can tell they're about to write you back. It's kind of convenient, right? And then you just kind of stop what you're doing, you're waiting. Oh, yeah. Depending on what it is, what if you wrote someone and you said, hey, listen, I, I'm sorry. Probably not the best way to apologize, but hey, it's a start, right? If you write to someone and you say, I screwed up and, and I'm sorry. And there's that thing just bobbling there. How do you know that when you cry out to the Father in confession and repentance, how do you know that He will come back and say, My son, my daughter, I love you, you were forgiven. Things are, we are well, it is at peace. Come home. Well, you only have that assurance when you look to Christ. We have union with Christ. And that's why when he says to Jesus here, this is my beloved son, we have union with him. And he looks at you and me and he says, you are my daughter and my son. And who am I well pleased because his righteousness covers us. We need his love. We, we're clothed in His righteousness. We need His cure. We need His love. We need His welcome. That's why we call it grace. God's grace, what does it stand for? God's riches at Christ's expense. It buys us that, that a great expense of His life buys us with his redemptive love so that we could be adopted. That's why we call it repentance, not penance. Where you need to, to, to work and stay so focused on self so that God will somehow owe you in your penance forgiveness. No, it is repentance, which is not proving or earning. It is surrendering. Returning again and again and again to the Father and to the Son. That through Jesus, as He has promised us, He's told us that if we abide in Him, we will bear much fruit. The fruit of repentance. More valuable than anything that you're, you and I might be chasing after or trying to produce, let alone. The fruit that comes abiding in Christ. By faith today, why don't you come to Him in repentance? Come to Him today. Don't delay. That's the best way to prepare our hearts for our King when He comes again, maybe today. Father, we look to You. We thank You for Your Spirit that would show us truth and things inwardly, in reality, in history. We pray that You would show us our guilt Thank you, God, for showing us your Son, covering us, offering a covering from that guilt with your death, Jesus. Thank you, God, the Father, for loving us with a steadfast love that adopts us into a family forever. Please, God, give us godly sorrow today, not, 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 not worldly grief, but, but godly grief over our sin leading to repentance. Keep us, Lord, a humble people that... That, that proclaim like John did, your word. And with our actions, 
we would proclaim and show and demonstrate and illustrate winsomely, but nevertheless boldly, that grace is amazing. Lord, grant us all that we need in various areas to walk into and consist of a repentance that leads to life and bears fruit. Lord, I pray you would lead us as a church to be a people. I pray that you would work in the hearts of our young people here. You protect them. There are many trials, many temptations, many pressures on them. I pray that you would capture their heart for the things of God the joys of walking with Jesus. May they not be deceived. May none of us be deceived today. Clear out our minds. Lord, I pray that you'd raise up leaders. I pray that you would be with us in our process of identifying and training up new officers, deacons and elders. Guide us in our mission. Lord, comfort those today in our church family whom we love, some of whom we can't see, some of whom have trials and troubles that we cannot see and they have not even... Let them be known. We pray that we would have eyes, that our radar would be on to help and to, to reach out and to, to comfort. Lord, I pray that you would, you, would, you would guide people to know of ways that they can serve one another. Bless, listen, pray, encourage. Lord, I, we pray especially, Lord, for those who are grieving for various reasons and at different points in that season of grief. Lord, I pray today for people who need, uh, need healing and protection. Lord, I pray for people who are in leadership and have many, tri- many trials because of the responsibilities there. Lord, I pray especially for those who need your healing touch, like our dear sister Emily. Lord, would you please work to clear her mind and to restore the health in her lungs, even now as she waits in the hospital. I pray that you would meet her with your presence and her whole family and strengthen her. Lord, prepare us for the kingdom that is to come. Thank you today for your word. Thank you for Jesus. We pray even now as he taught us in that pattern that he instructed his disciples praying together. Our Father.